Tonight I'd like to talk about the rest of the uh, seven factors of enlightenment that Joseph did a while ago. Basically the talk is about the tranquilizing factors of enlightenment, calm, concentration, equanimity. Mindfulness, um, I think Joseph talked the most about, it's uh, the basic warp of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's really um, what kind of glues the rest of the factors together. It holds them together. Investigation, energy, joy, these are the energizing or arousing factors of enlightenment. Calm, concentration, equanimity, these are the softening, tranquilizing factors of enlightenment. We tend to be um, out of balance in one side or the other. We tend to have an inclination toward the softening factors, or we might have an inclination toward the energizing factors. And if you even think in terms of um, a larger context, if you think of softness, the quality of softness, allowing receptivity, there's a, there's a very tranquil feeling to that, that sense. Just think soft. That's tranquil. If you think disciplined or focused or strong, there's often, you know, even as I said, there'll be an energized feeling with it. And these are, these are sometimes you might think of them as yin or yang. Uh, but it, it takes uh, a lot to learn how to balance these. <laughs> it's not, you know, it sounds easy, but it, it isn't. And it, it tends to be that if we get too soft, you know, <laughs> we fall asleep. And often we're, you know, if we tend to be a kind of energized, disciplined person, we might need to really be working with softness, but there might be a, a fear of going to sleep, so we tend to shy away from it. But that's just where we need to be working. Or we might be, you know, we might be very soft, you know, and be afraid of, of the feeling of power or the strength that comes from the energizing factors. So, so to keep in mind that usually we're, we're um, by inclination, out of balance in one, on one side or the other. Or we might have to, we might find that we've come to a certain level of energy and practice. And we might learn, need to learn on a very subtle level something about softness or tranquility. Also to keep in mind that we um, might have energy very well developed, but that doesn't mean that (laughs) we don't need to work on the others. Some people come into an interview and report a lot of calm, for example, and might think, well, that's it, nothing more to do. (laughs) It's not quite right. (laughs) You know, there is a little more to do than calmness. It's like this is a, when you, Think of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's a very big map. It, it's, it's been lifetimes of work already that you've done in the seven factors. It's a, it's a huge map. 
if one is fully enlightened, you know, the fourth stage of enlightenment, when one is considered fully enlightened, these are in balance every mind moment. You know, one moment when these are in balance is a moment of awakening or enlightenment, when these are all deeply in balance. And it's just to keep it in mind as a context or a map. And anything that you've done here, anything that you do here isn't wasted. It's like something is being worked on. It might be just energy for three years of practice. You know, or it might be that you're working with all of them, but none of it's wasted. They all need development. In regard to the tranquilizing factors, <clears throat> the Buddha said, when the mind is agitated, that is the wrong time to cultivate the enlightenment factors of investigation, of energy, and of joy. Why an agitated mind is hard to calm through these factors. He said, suppose a person wants to put a big fire out. If they heap dry cow dung and dry sticks on it, blow on it with their mouth and do not sprinkle it with dust, (laughs) can they put that fire out? No, indeed. An agit- so the, this is a back and forth between the Buddha and a monk. An agitated mind is not easy to calm through these factors. When the mind is agitated, that is the right time to cultivate the enlightenment factors of tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Why? Because an agitated mind is easy to calm through these factors. Suppose a person wants to put a big put out a big fire if they heap wet grass, wet cow dung, and wet sticks in it, and expose it to wind and rain if they sprinkle it with dust, can they put out that big fire? Yes, indeed. (laughs) Just so, when the mind is agitated, that is the right time to cultivate the enlightenment factor, factors of tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. An agitated mind is easy to calm through these factors. But as for mindfulness, I declare that it is always useful. (laughs) The metaphor of fire is, I think, really wonderful in regard to keeping these factors in balance. You know, if, if we get too soft, the fire goes out if we get too tranquil, if there's too, much invest, if there's too much energy, it gets to be a roaring blaze. And that's not helpful. It's just keeping the fire just right. When the fire is just right, there's that sense of being really awake and complete and whole. There's a balance of strength and softness of gentleness and precision. When I gave the talk on joy, I was talking about how when you look at the Buddha's smile, 
there's a smile, but it's really a balanced smile, you know, with joy. It isn't that sense of, whoopee, now I've got it and it's all over. This, this smile is a serene smile, and it, it's the joy, this, the accumulation of all the energy, investigation, energy, joy. Then that joy is balanced by this calm or serenity. So calm is the first of the tranquilizing factors. The Buddha said it was just like going from the hot, the hot sun on a very hot day to the cool shade of a tree. You know, just picture being in the desert, in the burning desert, and getting to the shade of a tree. It, it feels really wonderful. It's <clears throat> the mind when calm is present, is no longer on fire. The mind is no longer burning with attachment to pleasure, no longer burning with wanting. And the mind is no longer burning with aversion or not wanting. Sometimes people will hear, you know, this kind of metaphor of putting the fire out uh, with calmness as something kind of you know, not inviting. Uh, <laughs> this coolness um, will seem a little foreign. I think uh, Westerners, we all tend to be somewhat intensity junkies. You know, if it's not intense somehow, it's just not good enough. Calm is cool. It's very cooled out. It's just like putting out a fire. Often, um, when you're sitting, you're not so aware of it, but there'll be a kind of rhythm or pattern to a person's retreat. And sitting in on interviews, I get to hear, well, one interview, a person might seem very stormy. And I'll usually, by, you know, the next time I see them, they'll talk about it being calm. You know, and then there'll be a sense of it being stormy for a while, and then it'll be calm. And that's, that's the pattern. Most of you have probably heard of Mahasi Sayadaw. He was a great scholar and a great practitioner from Burma. And he was particularly great because he made this practice that we're doing available to lay people it used to be only available mostly to monks and nuns. Uh, so I always think that when we're all together, it's because of Mahasi Sayadaw. <clears throat> it's a great gift that he gave us. He came here to IMS when I was a cook in 1978. I had only done one two-week course before I came on staff, and I'd never been to Asia. I'd never um, been remotely exposed to anything like Mahasi Sayadaw. I had been living in a treehouse before I came down from Maine. Um, And it was a very hectic course from the staff point of view. There were 140 people here, and there were um, seven monks uh, who were staying at the house across the street. We on staff had never gotten the concept that we could actually ask for extra help. So there were four people cooking for all of these beings. 
Plus, it was, busy, it was very crowded, so I gave my room away and I was staying in a tent outside. So I would get up at 2 o'clock in the morning and run over to the house across the street to cook breakfast for Mahasi Saido. And I would be, those of you who don't know what I'm like before I have a cup of tea in the morning, I'd wake up and I'd be, you know, aversion, <laughs> grumpy and running over there. And I'd just kind of go slamming in the door, <laughs> slam the door, walk in and... I mean, it was just like, I felt like I'd you know, like been hit by an elephant or something, or gotten an elephant tranquilizer. It was just incredible. <laughs> the difference between my mind state and how calm it was in that room was extraordinary. It, um, and it had much more effect on me than anything that anybody could have ever said or anything that I could have read. It wasn't anything intellectual. It was just, it hit me very organically and physically. It was like, calm. You know, it was the, just <laughs> the calmest experience I'd ever had in my life. It was, um, I couldn't understand even how anybody could be that calm, really. <laughs> oh. It turned out that the person that I was cooking with, uh, the monks always have what is called a kapia, a person who takes care of the needs that they can't take care of. And there was someone from Burma who was cooking for him as well as me. And I I really liked him a lot. We had a lot of great conversations. Later I heard he was a great meditation teacher. You know, and I just, you know, he was just kind of billed as the cook but he was actually a well-known meditation teacher in Burma. And his influence also just really touched me, his calm, the tranquility. Some of that calm I've experienced around Deepama and Mahasi. Uh, Neither of them engaged in a lot of social chatter. You know, you wouldn't find them you know, spending hours goofing off. Uh, they were usually practicing, you know, they were usually very quiet and meditative when they weren't engaged in some kind of um, quiet talk. When Deepama was here teaching a three-month retreat, I was um, co-teaching with her. She always used to ask me every night if I had sat that night or if I was engaged in any social conversation. I'd always go, you know. <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, I did talk for four hours last night. You know, it's like she wanted me to sit for four or five hours every night while I was teaching the three-month course, and I couldn't conceive of it. You know, it just <laughs> seemed um, unbelievable to me. But over time, I've had the sense of, for them, you know, this sense of the seven factors, it, they were so imbalanced, they just couldn't engage in a lot of social chatter. It wouldn't, it just, it wasn't something they did. They just, they just were just really calm and quiet and wanted to be meditating whenever they weren't having to do something. And I'm not saying that that's where we all are, um, but the effect of it, Um, is this factor of enlightenment. It was very even and calm to be around them. 
the opposite of calmness is a feeling of being scattered or nervous. It's like there's these waves in the mind. If scatteredness is present, often um, it's said that harmful speech or harmful actions come out of this scatteredness, and this will um, cause remorse in the mind. The scattered, this, um, it'll go from scatteredness to sometimes harmful actions or speech, and then remorse, which leads to suffering for us. Calmness or tranquility is said to simplify our life because there's less and less harmful actions born out of the scatteredness, which leads to less and less remorse in the mind. The calmness is a feeling of being quiet. There's no mental turmoil. Calmness also affects the body. One's movements will become very gentle and often graceful and smooth. In the Vasudhi Magga, there's a list of um, traditional aids to calmness that I always find fun to list. The, The first is nutritious food. The next is good weather. How many of you were calm today? (laughs) The next is having a comfortable posture. Uh, Balanced effort in practice brings calm. Avoiding bad-tempered people, which is pretty obvious. (laughs) And keeping keeping the company company of tranquil people aids in calmness. Um, I like to mention every once in a while that keeping the silence is really important because it helps bring calm. And sometimes we need to be reminded every so often about that. Most people find that it's the silence that is the best support of the retreat. Even when people come in for short retreats, that's what they remember the most is when they go back into the um, very busy, noisy world, the the silence is so powerful. And the silence is what helps aid this factor of enlightenment calm. I remember when I moved to Maine in 1973, I had lived in Massachusetts um, my whole life. And I moved, um, it seemed to me, as far out as I could have ever moved. We had no electricity, no running water, and um, we were about 50 miles from the highway. And we were the only people in our town. (laughs) It was that far out there. Uh, It was way out in northern Maine. And I remember I used to go to visit the man in the post office. This was about eight miles from where I lived, and that was town, and that was it. Uh, and he told me once that, just to keep in mind, the highway was 40 miles away from the post office, and it had been built about 20 years before I moved up there. And he told me once that the building of the highway was the worst thing that ever happened to the town. <laughs> And coming from outside of Boston, I couldn't believe it. It's like, 
you know, here was this highway like 40 miles from the post office. It hadn't affected the place at all, except that we had moved there. Maybe that's what he meant. It was just the quietest place, talk about calm, I'd ever been. Um, And I really, it took me years to really start to settle in and appreciate what he meant by that. You know, it was... um, when, when, after a long winter, the fiddleheads came into being, you know, the, the fiddleheads are these ferns that people pick in the spring for a vegetable. Uh, that's a big event up there, you know, in that town. You know, the very small things become really big. And it's, it's the same as being on a retreat, you know. Um, lunch is a really big event here. <laughs> I remember one time my father called when I was doing a three-month course, and I was, you know, he he was talking, and I was thinking, what am I going to say I've been doing, you know? And it's like, well, we, I sat and I walked and I sat, and then I thought, oh, oh, I had lunch, you know? It's like the only thing that you can even mention. (laughs) But it's um. This is hard to appreciate if you're living an intense life. It's like you have no idea how calm it is here. Whenever I have to go out, you know, far away to town and I come kind of racing in and get a cup of tea at the tea urn, it's such a gift to just come in to this place. And and again, you'll have no idea how powerful it is, but it's, it's so powerful you can cut it with a knife. And it's wonderful. It's a, it's a gift to the world that you're doing. There's nothing like calm. Especially in the world as we have it in our culture, it's very rare to bring in an atmosphere of calm into what we're doing. There's always this hurry, hurry, hurry. And when we're calm, we affect everyone. And when it's difficult, very difficult, and it's calm even is more powerful. You've probably heard of um, Titnat Hans talking about the boat people and the refugees going in small boats from Vietnam looking for a home. And he said that if one person in the boat remained calm, it would affect everyone in the boat. But if somebody was really afraid and nervous and and disturbed, it would disturb everyone in the boat. And he uses that as a metaphor to what's happening on the earth now, especially environmentally. If there's one being that stays calm, it affects everyone. A lot of people will come in for interviews and say, you know, but what good, what is, what good is it what I'm doing now? I don't feel like I'm getting concentrated, I'm not getting mindful, you know. You know, and I sit there and, and most of you, you know, you're just oozing wisdom, you're oozing calm, you're just bright, but you don't, you don't have any perspective. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's, you're in a, you know, you're, it's, it's such a powerful space you're in. And important. 
there's a poem by Ryokan that I think uh, is this feeling of calm. What is the heart of this old man like? A gentle wind beneath the vast sky. What is the heart of this old man like? A gentle wind beneath the vast sky. That gentle wind is calm. So there's calm, and then the next tranquilizing or softening factor of enlightenment is concentration, or samadhi. Samadhi is the ability to stay one-pointed or focused. It's keeping the it's bringing the attention somewhere and keeping it there. There's been many um, ways of explaining that. Sometimes it's called aiming and rubbing. Sometimes it's called aiming or connecting, connecting and sustaining the attention. Uh, A concentrated mind means the mind is collected, it's unified, and it's focused. For me, the best example of this is just um, to imagine the surface of a pond. And when it's a very still day, the sun's out, there's no wind, and if you look at the surface of the pond, it's, it's very, very still. And when the surface of the pond is still, you can see into the pond, you can see in very deeply, you can explore. Or you can also see the whole sky reflected on the surface of the pond. If the surface of the pond is disturbed, you know, say it's windy or rainy or stormy, you can't see into the Um, depth of the water and you can't see anything reflected. So concentration is just like when the surface of the pond is, is still. And it's through the concentration, by having a still mind, this is when we can explore. Sometimes it'll feel like there's a sense of the whole sky being reflected in, in the mind and other times we'll feel like we're going deep. But we can't do this unless there's a stillness of mind. There are two different kinds of concentration. There's fixed concentration and momentary concentration. We've been doing um, in the Brahma Viharas the fixed concentration. Fixed concentration is when um, you repeat something like the words in metta, you might repeat a mantra. It's when you ignore everything that's happening and just keep repeating the words. So if a sound comes, you ignore it. If a body sensation comes, you ignore it. Whatever, if a thought comes, it's not like you go to it and explore it, you ignore it. You keep coming back, keep coming back. This brings about a laser type of attention. Fixed concentration brings a very powerful kind of concentration. It's also a repression. 
you're ignoring everything that's happening. And it brings a seclusion of mind. Momentary concentration is the kind of concentration we're developing in Vipassana. Uh, Instead of ignoring what's happening, you're going from object to object to object to object. There'll be a sound and there'll be a momentary moment of concentration with it. And then there'll be another object, a body sensation. You move your attention, concentrate on it momentarily, move. So the, the, in Vipassana, you're moving with life as it is, with life as it changes. See, they're very, they're very different. In Vipassana, you're going with how life actually is. It's a constant series of changes, moment by moment. When you use the anchor as a primary object, this is, it's kind of, it's bringing about a certain kind of seclusion. It rests the mind. It relaxes the mind. And it's really important. This will bring a lot of energy to the practice. It might be that you're not using the breath. You might use the whole body as an anchor. Or you might use hearing as an anchor. But whatever you use as an anchor, uh, this is meant to be soft, relaxed. This brings a kind of stillness. There's a certain kind of happiness that comes from this kind of seclusion. We're secluded from the hindrances. That's why there's this happiness that happens. And it's very important for the sense of well-being in the body and mind, this, this kind of um, concentration or seclusion. Stillness is a very important aspect of the practice. Seclusion takes a certain kind of firmness. You know, sometimes we have to say no to thinking. Sometimes it'll feel feel like we have to be a bit fierce at times. It takes a kind of warrior-type energy if we're getting flooded by thinking. It might be that you say, no, thank you, (laughs) rather than no. Um, But it takes sometimes a feeling of just saying no and coming back to the breath, coming back to the breath, or whatever the anchor is. Sometimes it's difficult. Um, But it's that seclusion that will bring about a kind of stillness at times, that will help us explore. It might be that you can't explore a lot. It might be that you need to be working just with stillness, just with stillness. And that it's it's being very lightly with the breath, or being very lightly with the movement of the legs. It's not looking really closely. It's very light. Uh, And it's, it's meant to be restful. Again, at this point in the retreat, you might not have a sense of how powerful it is to have one mind moment free of mental turmoil. You know, you'll forget because you have a lot of them. (laughs) You have a lot of moments where you're free of it uh, in comparison to what it's like in our daily lives. So you'll forget how powerful that is. But any time that you can just be with the movement of the legs or the movement of the breath, one moment free of mental turmoil is a great accomplishment. And this is a lot of what we're doing in practice, is resting the mind, 
relaxing the mind. And this, br- this builds up the energy, this brings the strength to at some point open some more and explore. And you might explore for three seconds in a day, or it might be several sittings or several walkings or during eating. There might be that rest enough in the mind and stillness to look deeply in the pond. And great, do it as much as you can, and then when you can't, back off again. If you trust that, you can build on it. If you're fighting, if you're trying to look closely and there's not the stillness, it backfires. You can't force it. It's possible to explore anything when stillness is there. It's possible to explore the most horrendous thoughts or emotions or the most wonderful sensations. With the still mind, there's a possibility of having intuitive understanding by directly coming in contact with life as it is. We don't, we can't understand life as it is if we're ignoring what's happening. So we're, we're going directly to what's happening in life in Vipassana. When the mind is scattered or tired, we don't have the strength to orient toward that moment-to-moment change. So that's when we develop the anchor. One can be very concentrated and appear to be very happy and blissful, um, but we might not have very much understanding. Without wisdom, a lot of power of mind can be very dangerous. The power of mind um, depends on who's using it. If we have a lot of wisdom and a lot of power of mind, we can put that strength and power of mind to great use. But if we have a lot of power of mind and we don't have any understanding or very little, it can often be very destructive. Uh, You usually find in the Vipassana world people teaching uh, very encouraging of people doing Vipassana because the orientation is so much on developing understanding. You know, because without the understanding, power of mind is dangerous. And I'm sure you can think of many examples. I have a sort of ridiculous example, um, (laughs) but it usually is effective, so bear with me. If you, um, I have a friend that has this dog that um, loves Oreo cookies. And <laughs> if one goes to this dog and holds up an Oreo cookie, this dog gets an immediate kind of samadhi fix right onto the cookie. <laughs> it's just one-pointed, incredibly focused, a unified mind. It's like incredibly unified right on the, seeing, seeing, you know, right at the cookie. And if you move the cookie, you know, his head will move. It's, it's great samadhi. You know, and this is the, <laughs> it's great samadhi, but 
I don't know how much wisdom is being <laughs> developed. <laughs> you know, so we have to keep this in mind with concentration that it it feels good. You know, the dog is you know the tail's wagging. It's great, um, but it's not necessarily developing wisdom. And I, I'm saying this because uh, power of mind can be very dangerous without wisdom. Wisdom is really important. And Vipassana, you know, we're at that point in the retreat where, you know, it's a marathon. It's November 20th, (laughs) you know. It can get hard. It can get tiring. It's just like running a marathon. So it's just to remind you, wisdom, developing wisdom is hard, but so important. Vipassana, you know, it's not like we're just sitting in bliss all day. Right? (laughs) It's hard work. Stillness or samadhi will bring a lot of simplicity to our life. It's the ability to take one breath at a time. Just, you know, just to be able to take one breath at a time to be able to take one step at a time. It sounds easy and sounds simple, but this is the practice. This is what we're doing. We're learning to be in the present moment. This being with one day at a time, or with one landscape of sadness at a time, or whatever it is, brings great ease and well-being to our life. And this is what the practice is about, is this well-being, this ease. There's a saying from Dogen that I like a lot. It's about um, the full moon. The moon is so beautiful tonight, I thought I'd read it. He said that gaining enlightenment is like the moon reflecting in the water. The moon does not get wet, nor is the water disturbed. Although its light is extensive and great, the moon is reflected even in a puddle an inch across. The whole moon and the whole sky are reflected in a dewdrop in the grass in one drop of water. Gaining enlightenment is like the moon reflecting in the water. The moon does not get wet, nor is the water disturbed. Although its light is extensive and great, the moon is reflected even in a puddle an inch across. The whole moon and the whole sky are reflected in a dewdrop in the grass, in one drop of water. This one drop of water is one moment. One moment when we're really awake. It can only happen in one moment, being awake.
calm, concentration, equanimity. If I'm getting too tranquil, some of you might be asleep. (laughs) These are tranquilizing. Detachment is born out of equanimity. Equanimity is being okay with whatever's happening. When you have the experience of equanimity, you'll get very attached to it because it's the sweetest experience possible as a human being. (laughs) The mind is in balance. It's unshakable. It's when we're at peace. And it's really wonderful. Equanimity is the opposite of the reacting mind. Reacting with attachment to pleasure or reacting with aversion to unpleasantness. The Buddha taught that it's possible to be free from greed, hatred, and delusion. But this doesn't mean that in the human realm that will be free from pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutral feelings. And often, um, this is what we wish it was, (laughs) freedom. It would be nice if we were free from pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feelings, but what we're getting free from is reacting to pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feelings. So when we hear it's possible to be free from greed, hatred, and delusion, Often we apply our great Western willpower and striving to this, and we decide we want to be perfectly free from greed, hatred, and delusion right now. Um, (laughs) We want to be rid of greed, hatred, and delusion before we even get to see it. And what we're doing in retreat is really just delayering and really getting a better and better view (laughs) of aversion or attachment. A lot of the work in meditation is learning to accept and to work with the reacting mind. Because if we can't do this, we'll just become more and more of a glacier. When we learn to accept and work with the reacting mind, this melts the ice. Melting the ice enables us to gradually open and deepen our understanding our wisdom. Equanimity means that we're open and connected, but detached. It's not indifference. The heart is open, not closed to what's happening. At this point, you'll probably have a sense that if you sit for an hour, or a day, or two days, you know, that there's pretty good war going on. We might be at war with what's going on inside, that's an inner war, or we might be fighting with something on the outside, that's an outer war. Um, But there's very little peace in our hearts. It could be knee pain. It could be somebody at the retreat. It could be the food, whatever it is. There's usually something we're fighting with. We want more concentration. We want more mindfulness. It gets very subtle. We want more equanimity. (laughs) This is a war. Equanimity is when the war is over. 
And that's why we love it so much. It's so sweet. We're not fighting anymore. Equanimity is the difference between being at war with ourself or or something outer or at peace. I've mentioned this before, but just to keep in mind that um, meditation is is like... um, a flower opening. Sometimes the metaphor is of a full moon. Sometimes it's like a flower opening. And when we open, if you think of a flower bud and you see the flower bud open, when we open, we open to the dark and the light. You know, when we open, we just can't open to the good stuff. It's, It's opening to the totality of everything. Uh, and if you think yourself, of yourself as a flower bud, how many times are you trying to rip the petals open in a day? <laughs> Never mind, in a week. Uh, it takes this great uh, patience because until we have the strength of mind to open to the range of what we're opening to, if if we just went like this, if we just opened totally, we'd be screaming our brains out. We just wouldn't have the strength to open to that much unpleasantness. There would be just as much pleasantness, um, but it's, it's, it's this balance of mind that we're learning gradually on a three-month course. There's nothing like a long course because we get to practice over and over again reacting and then letting go, and reacting, and then letting go. So it's, it's um, gradual because it's this gradual development of wisdom, of understanding. It doesn't happen like that. We develop the strength to cope with that much openness. Equanimity is sometimes called holy equanimity because I think it's because there's no need to run away from pain anymore. If you can imagine, there's no need to run away from pain anymore or there's no need to hold on to pleasure anymore. There's this very deep happiness that comes from not being afraid of life as it is. There's a letting go of control because we can just be with it as it is. No mindfulness, no problem. You know, it's just, it just letting it be how it is. Too much concentration, falling asleep. You do the best you can, but it's okay. We're not fighting with it anymore. It's just letting the process happen, getting out of the way. This process of opening takes tremendous compassion for ourselves and others along the way. What we're doing is what we're uncovering what most people do, we, what most people desperately work at keeping hidden. We're uncovering the reacting mind, that very raw wanting and the raw not wanting. If you spend any time with a two- or three-year-old, you get to see the raw wanting and not wanting mind very clearly. 
It's just like a mantra. I want, I want, I want. No, no, no. <laughs> I want, I want, I want. And what we do in a retreat is we start uncovering that again. <laughs> and, you know, you read on the brochure about all this peace and happiness, and what you start seeing is, I want, I want, I want. No, no, no. I mean, we start, <laughs> what we start to see is that very raw reacting mind. You know, we get peace at times, we get the happiness of letting go, but a lot of it is, is seeing that rawness, and we don't like it. We don't want any part of it. We think we're adults. <laughs> Which, you know, that, that's the process of being human. You learn how to become a very defended, you know, armored being so that you can function in the world. And that's important. But then you start to think, maybe I don't need these defenses anymore. Maybe I don't need to be armored anymore. Maybe I can develop the strength to be open like I was as a child. But we don't get the openness without the wisdom. So the process is when we become an adult, if we don't become a prisoner of the defenses we develop that we learn to cope with in life, is we learn to open and we learn to develop wisdom. And it's a gradual process. Remembering that our greatest teachers on a retreat are anything we're having aversion to or anything we're attached to. That's teaching us to learn to work with the reacting mind. We'll often think, I could just, if I, I, if I could just get rid, rid of this knee pain, I'd get enlightened. But it's that knee pain that's helping us learn how to work with aversion. You know, if I could just get a chocolate, you know, or, you know, whatever it is, I could really do better. But it's that wanting that's teaching us how to learn to be with wanting. And this is why it takes so much compassion, because we we lose track. We don't see that that's what we're doing on a retreat, is learning how to work with a reacting mind. It's accepting it that's half the battle. When we're fighting reacting, we just get in a bigger and bigger knot. Ultimately, it's learning to have equanimity with reacting. It's having equanimity with having no equanimity. Because at some point in a huge reaction, you know, there's some point where we'll have mindfulness and we'll yield. It might be there's an unpleasant sound, aversion to the unpleasantness, extreme aversion, extreme, extreme aversion, screaming mind. And then at some point we'll go, oh, it's aversion, oh yeah. And that oh, maybe I can try to work with this. That's what we're doing on the retreat. And you know that we can't fake acceptance, we can't fake equanimity. It's really, you can fake a lot of things in life. You can put, (laughs) you know how you put on that happy smile and whistle while you work, but um, when when there's no equanimity, it's really clear. It's excruciating. It's like, I don't mind if terror terror has happened again. I really don't mind. But you do mind. (laughs) That's when there's no equanimity. Uh, And that's why it's so sweet uh, when it's there, because we're at home. we're, We're not at war. 
and it's learning to be okay when we're reacting. It's that moment when we accept, oh, attachment, oh, wanting. This is why I call it melting the ice. It melts the knot. This process takes tremendous courage because when we're very mindful and equanimous, that's when we want to come back. You know, we're planning the next three-month retreat. We're planning all the sitting we're going to do in the future because we feel invincible. You know, it feels great. And then when it's dark, when there's no mindfulness, no equanimity, I bet you know how many minutes are left in a retreat. You know, at least the days. You, you know, most of you know how many days are left. <laughs> if not hours. <laughs> and it'll go from feeling at home to being lost. And being at home and being lost. Over and over again. That's the process. And it takes such courage. I mean, if you told people what you were doing here, you know, and what it's really like, you know, where you'll be at home and then something comes up, which is, that's the teaching, is when something comes up. And then we we fight it, we fight it. It's like a cartoon. And you know it's happening. It's like, oh, I'm not fighting this, I'm not fighting this. (laughs) Yes, I am. I'm fighting this. And that takes courage to face that over and over again. And then we finally open... We, we let go. We can't believe we've been holding on to whatever it is we've been holding on to. We let it go and start it again. Ultimately, this is love. It's really, love is being able to open to the unpleasant and the pleasant. Trusting that wherever we are in the process is just where we need to be, you know, This is what we're learning, too, on retreat, is great trust. Just trusting layer after layer of the onion being unpeeled. (laughs) Sometimes there's a great question people want to know, is is enlightenment sudden? or is enlightenment gradual? I think the seven factors of enlightenment are a great map for that because really what we do for lifetimes is develop these different factors of mindfulness, of investigation, energy, joy, calm, concentration, equanimity. That's gradual. But any time when they come into balance, That's sudden. And we can't control that. Someone mentioned to Stephen recently that meditation just basically makes you more accident-prone, enlightenment-prone. It's like you can't control when when these factors come into balance. but it will be sudden. But it won't be sudden because it's been lifetimes of development. So it's really both. (laughs) 
There's a chant that, part of a chant that I like a lot, that says, all conditioned things are arising and passing away. Understanding this brings the greatest kind of happiness, which is peace. All things are arising and passing away. Understanding this brings the greatest kind of happiness, which is peace. The happiness in Vipassana, this peace, is very subtle. It's incredibly, exquisitely subtle, but it's worth everything. Let's sit for a few minutes. Keep going, keep going. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.